Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Our brains evolved to seek security by focusing in on the patterns we could recognize in our environment. But according to David Weinberger, author of Everyday Chaos, new advances in machine learning are showing us unexpected ways to interpret an increasingly complex and digitally enhanced world, creating both opportunities and dangers our ancestral experience couldn't have prepared us for. In this episode of Hack the Process, David tells us what machine learning has to teach the experts in business strategy, how artificial intelligence is showing us new ways to think about what our society truly values, and why he chose to write and publish his ideas about new ways of thinking and communicating in the form of a printed book. Today I'm speaking with David Weinberger, and he's the author of Everyday Chaos. David, how are you doing today? Um, okay. Everyday Chaos. That's something that sounds like we all live with every day. Can you tell us a little bit about what the concept is there? Well, it's certainly the case that we all live in chaos, and we all at times feel like we're living in chaos. The book is about how the idea of chaos is becoming dominant, I think, in how we are thinking about how the world works. And the book thinks that uh, this is for two main reasons. There's lots of reasons, but two main reasons. The first is that we've been living on the internet for 20, 25 years now, most of us anyway. It's a really important part of our daily lives. And the internet is just, it's chaotic in every sense, both sort of the technical sense, but also it's just chaotic. Uh, there's so much going on. We don't have any idea of trying, ever trying to comprehend everything, even on any one topic. You're always aware of the superabundance of stuff, no matter how small the topic is that you're researching or looking, looking into. Things happen that we can't possibly keep up on. A single thread, a single idea just sprouts so many different branches and sub-branches and sub-branches and reach outs here and there, and they connect because it's all hyperlinked together. And the little tiny things that happen can suddenly, without being genuinely unpredictable, will become worldwide phenomena. It's the most obvious example of these, of this is uh, things that go viral and everybody looks at it and they're, you know, you're amused and you say, well, of all the things, why has this been viewed three billion times or whatever it is? And all of these things are actually classic chaos theory ways of, of living in which there's a superabundance and little causes can have huge events as the butterfly effect, uh, unpredictable, non-linear, that is, Rules may sort of apply in up to a point, and then suddenly the rules change and the thing starts working differently and we can't figure it out. It's Not only are we used to it, at this point, I think most of us really like it. You take our internet away from us and things just seem too boring and predictable and we like this chaos. And so we've been, and we're succeeding at it. I, I know, obviously, there's huge problems that the internet has caused. Nevertheless, many of us are on it for many hours every day in part for work, but in part also because it feels more like it feels like home at this point. We are used to this and we are succeeding at the Internet. So, well, succeeding at things like that is it's the nature of the human animal. It's like our ability to adapt is the thing that keeps us going. And so as things change around us, I, I think that it's, it's one of the things we gravitate toward things that change in order to exercise that ability. You know, I think that's exactly right. But I think one of the really big points, and this is going to bring us to the other thing that is bringing us to different idea about how the world works and more chaotic ideas. Yeah, we, we adapt, of course. But for literally for tens of thousands of years, we've used a particular strategy to adapt. And that strategy is to try to anticipate what's going to happen and then to prepare for it. And we will always continue to do this. I'm not saying this is going to go away, but that has been the most basic strategy that we've used in order to survive and to flourish. And obviously it works pretty well, especially if you're you know, human and we're pretty good at predicting, anticipating and, and preparing. But there's also a huge price that we, we pay for this, which we don't notice because we haven't had much of a choice. 
So and we get, we're just used to the idea that we're we're going to over prepare or we're going to under prepare or we're going to misprepare. It's just that's the way it is, and all of those things are extremely costly, both to, both to businesses and in our personal lives, because it means you you built more stuff than you need, and it goes fallow or it rots or whatever, or you didn't build enough and you lost opportunities, you built the wrong things, and you know you die because you're not prepared. So there's a huge hidden cost that we've just gotten so used to that we don't even count them as hidden costs. It's just you know of course, but. On the internet, there's been many of the most interesting sort of paradigmatic things about the internet are have gone against this very ancient, really genuinely paleolithic strategy of anticipating and preparing. And these are all simple examples. But the fact that they are simple examples that we just take for granted, for me, is the thing that's really remarkable. It's interesting to think that it's going against that that inclination, because... In my mind, I could also see a way in which it's almost gamifying that 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 inclination of ours. And it's tickling that part of our brain that wants that curiosity, that wants to create connections where there may be no connections. Those connections only exist in our minds. And it's keeping us going forward. It's keeping us actively developing and moving it. As, as chaos gets faster and faster, we get more and more excited. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, which we've been liberated to rather than trying to do our traditional approach, which has been to try to restrict the things we have to deal with because it's just too much, we've gotten used to not only embracing this abundance, but using uh, particular strategies that hold off from anticipating. Rather than trying to anticipate better, which has been the normal way for thousands, tens of thousands of years, we have now things on the internet where we actively try to hold off from anticipating. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. One is the idea of a minimum viable product, which is very popular among software companies. So the normal way of designing a product is if you're Henry Ford and it's 1908, you design your Model T to anticipate exactly what your market wants. And if you're Henry Ford, you get it right the first time. So that's unusual, but it's a great example because he nailed it. That's why he's Henry Ford, and that's why we remember him. Exactly. 19 years, they did not make any visible changes, basically. And they sold 15 million of them. It was a huge success because he did it right. He anticipated, and he built it once. Usually, we anticipate user needs, and we don't get it right, you know, exactly right, but we try to. Well, minimum viable product, which dates basically from the beginning of the new millennium, says, well, no, let's actually not do that let's avoid doing that as much as possible. So rather than trying to figure out exactly what the features are that people are going to want in our product, because you only get to launch it once, instead, let's just, what's what's the core feature? The one core feature that people are going to want. Let's launch with that, maybe a couple other features also, but really minimum set of features, sell it. And it has to be something people will actually buy. And then let's watch and see what our users are doing with it, what they say to other users and to us about what they actually need, where they want this uh, system to be able to integrate with others. And then let's incrementally add features to it. And that way, we hold off on anticipating user needs as much as we can, because now we have a worldwide network and we can learn from users what they actually need. That's true. We're also in a position now to get some actual feedback from our users, whereas in the past, you know, we haven't actually had that facility to be able to instrument a, a product and say, tell us immediately what people are using, what people like, what people don't like, without having to interfere with what they're doing. Yes, and we can measure. Uh, exactly, right? So we had some pretty primitive things that we used to use. You know, we check in with some handful or sample of, of users. We let them self-report. But users, and we're all users, I'm not belittling users, we humans don't actually know what we want and we misbelieve, <laughs> misunderstand how we're actually using things and the like. That was a Henry Ford quote too. If we had asked users, they would have said that they wanted faster horses. Right. So so now, just as you say, we have the means to be able to actually see what users need, including by speaking with them. And the users connect also, right? I mean, they talk with one another and they complain or they make suggestions. So this is a very successful way of doing product planning, but it's a way of doing planning that holds back from anticipating as much as possible. And we've been doing this, and it's hugely successful, and it's a reversal of the paleolithic strategy of anticipate and prepare. And there are tons and tons of other examples of this on the internet, everything from open source to open access to building open platforms so that other people can build stuff out of what we, the product company, have, have provided, make new things that we haven't thought of. There are unconferences where the agenda is set by the attendees when they arrive, not by the conference organizers beforehand who are trying to anticipate what, you, what attendees want to talk about. It's a very common theme on the internet. 
and it's undoing tens of thousands of years of basic human strategy, which has been to try to get the anticipate and guess and the like. This has a lot of implications for how business can approach what they're doing and you know, also how, how we in our lives approach the processes that we work through ourselves, right? Yes, I think it has, I think it has huge implications, uh, many of which are very practical in terms of what it means to create a strategy and the like. But I'm going to go really broad right away and then we can, we can drill down maybe. <laughs> because one of the ways of thinking about this is we have had this idea about the future. That the way to manage the future, to succeed, is the future is this, we thought, this broad range of possibilities. And the further out you look, the more possibilities there are. And as these possibilities approach, as the future approaches, they narrow. Things that looked like they were possible turn out not to be until it narrows so far down that you have the one thing that's real that becomes the, the present. And so our overall, our approach to the future has been to try to take this narrowing field, pick the thing that we want, and make sure it narrows it to that. These other techniques uh, and strategies I've talked just briefly about, many of them aim at doing exactly the opposite. They say, you know how we can succeed as a business? And also, by the way, as a culture, leave that aside for the moment. Uh, you know how we can succeed as a business? Let's not anticipate and let's go even further than that or do as little anticipation as possible. And then let's also provide tools and data and services that will allow other people to make more of our products than we ever imagined, which is to say we can succeed if we try to make the future rather something that narrows, make the future into something that explodes open, make many, many, many more possibilities. And this is what goes against our paleolithic instincts to try to find security, where it, basically it's, it's trusting in the process and trusting in the environment to catch us and allowing things to happen. Yes, and there are scary things that do happen and reasons not to do this and reasons to put in some guardrails to prevent that as much as possible. But I'll give you a really simple and relatively, relatively old example, which is in the world of, of video games. So back into the early 1980s, game companies already were permitting and eventually pretty quickly encouraging users to take their game and to create new maps for it. If it's a sort of a moving around a geography thing or to change the characters from whatever into Smurfs or whatever, which is a very early example, or to change the rules or some of the battle games to invent new weapons um, to put it on a new planet. These are game mods. They started back then, but they are extremely important and popular now. And some companies for very long, because you know, these video games dwarf Hollywood in terms of their <laughs> economics and their scale. Some of them provide the same tools that their own developers use to create the games to the public. So the public can create these mods. These mods, and this is, I think, typical of many of these new strategies, add value to the game. You take a game and it's a great game and you play it and there's another 2,000 versions of it, some of them radically different or some of them with just small tweaks to make the game play a little differently. You, you're, that game now becomes more valuable because you let the rest of the world build it out in ways that you wouldn't have thought of or ways you wouldn't have done or for a niche audience you couldn't have afforded to address. If you open it up, your product gains value. And you do this by enabling more possibility and basically enabling more future. Yeah, I think so. These days, a savvy game purchaser looks to see if there's a developer community supporting a game before jumping in so that they know that there are options out there beyond what one developer might be able to support. Yes, absolutely. And the same thing is true outside of games. Slack, for example, which, as I'm sure you know, is a very popular messaging tool for work groups. And they have supported the ability, an open application programming interface, an a way for anybody on the web to add uh, services and tools to it and to build a sort of a niche UI on top of it, or maybe uh, what I think is maybe the most important thing, to enable people to integrate Slack by doing a little programming development work. Right? Got to be a little technical here, but to integrate Slack into people's particular workflows. There's some team that's using this piece of software, that piece of software, and they're sending, you know, their product develops it and ideas develop this way or that. You can use this openness of Slack to integrate it into your particular workflow, which is fantastic for Slack because it means it's integral now to how your team works. But it's something they cannot, that Slack team cannot do for all of the world. They are making more possibilities. 
once you've created a modification for Slack, you are dedicated to Slack now because you have created something for it. And they've also made it very simple. It's, you say it's technical to do. They've made it as untechnical as possible. It's like more fundamental 21st century skills to be able to do that kind of thing. It's basically some JavaScript, you know, the world's most popular programming language. Uh, in fact, Slack has set up an $80 million fund in order to encourage developers to create these add-on Slack applications. And we've just gotten used to it. It's the same thing with all the extensions to the browsers and the plugins for this or that. These are all ways of losing control. A company loses often some degree of control, but they enable the entire world to add value to their product. And as you say, I think it's a really important point. Once you've done this for Slack or for whatever, this is now your product. You have some type of emotional investment as well as the fact the thing works better for you now. Absolutely. Now, I'm, I'm curious, you yourself are not a developer, but you've been attracted to this side of the world. I'm curious what brought you into this and what made you start thinking about these things. So the thing that's been most interesting for the past couple of years, so I wrote about the internet for 20 years, and I still write about it, and I still love the internet. But for the past few years, I've been mainly thinking and writing about artificial intelligence, and in particular, machine learning, the type of AI that I think most people, when they hear about AI or talk about AI these days, are probably talking about the type known as machine learning. And that, that has become fascinating to me for a few reasons that are related to what I think is the change in how we think about and address the future that the internet has brought us to. So on the internet, we're in this chaotic environment and we're learning to succeed in it in pretty new and distinct and epically important ways. We're changing how we think the future works from narrowing to saying, nope, way to, way to succeed in the future is to expand it. Machine learning comes along and machine learning is very different from ordinary computing. Programming a computer in the, uh, the old fashioned way, you know, the, the normal way, you try to figure out what are all the factors that are involved in affecting something. So if it's your business and you're trying to write a program to predict quarterly sales, you'll say, you know, but here's what counts there. Here's what we need to know. How many salespeople, what are their incentives? How many leads do we have? And so forth. And then, so those are the factors. And then you figure out what the connections are. The more leads, then likely more sales calls and maybe more, et cetera, et cetera. And you build what is in effect. It's just like building a spreadsheet. Yes. And executives have built their careers on being able to anticipate what those things are, come up with a list of them and then track them effectively. Absolutely. And it's a hugely valuable skill, of course. But that's how you program a computer. You figure out, traditionally, you figure out what are the factors and what are the relationships. With machine learning, you don't do that exactly. What you do is get a whole bunch of data, tons and tons and tons and tons of data. If it's a medical application, then in one case, a hospital did a machine learning application that took in 700,000 patient records, anonymized, each of which had about 500 data points. And they just fed this data into the machine learning system without telling it how we humans think that data connects. These are medicines, those are symptoms, these are cures, these are diseases, and we know how those things go together, but let's not do that. Let's just give it all this data. It's all numbers. And let the machine try to figure out what are the correlations among all of those pieces of data. I mean, it's a mind-boggling task. And in the case of some types of machine learning, the particularly interesting ones for me, the systems make a extremely complex map of those interrelationships the data and how they correlate and what the strength of the correlation is. And then this is a type of neural network, it's called. Vast and deeply complex, so complex the human brain couldn't follow all the pieces if you wanted to. And then you feed in some new medical information for a particular patient and it will say, oh, uh, it'll output what it has what it thinks probabilistically might be that patient's condition. So uh, it turns out maybe you turn, the system thinks that you have a 72% chance of developing type 2 diabetes in the next five years, and you ask why. And in some cases, we can know, but in some cases, it's just too complex for us. And so what's really interesting to me is, I mean, the applications are mind-boggling. The dangers are also mind-boggling. But what's really interesting to me is the nature of the model that's made. Because our approach to managing the future has been to anticipate it and to prepare for it. But those anticipations have been, we've anticipated by trying to come up with generalizations. And in science, these are general principles and laws. And, you know, God bless science and we should be investing more in it. But this shows up all over the place as well. And sometimes very informal rules of thumb and the like. Our way of understanding the world as has been to hope, think, and assume that there are general principles that hold everywhere, we preferably, 
And then we can take some particular case and see which general principles apply to it and say, okay, now we understand it. We understand why, whatever it is, why the, the pebble fell or why the stock market went down or why the, the patient had a, an episode or whatever. It's a fine way of proceeding, but it is reductive. It's fundamentally limited by the way that our human brains work. I mean, in the abstract universe, there's no such thing as type 2 diabetes. We have labeled a set of outcomes as likely being associated with something we've called type 2 diabetes so that we don't have to think so much every single time. But when you feed data into a, into a neural network, that naming convention doesn't need to be there and it doesn't limit the thinking process. No, it's exactly right. And it's really nicely put. The machine just has numbers. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't know what a disease is. It doesn't know what what a spleen is. It just it just has numbers, and it's doing these correlations. You know, cancer is also a really great example of just what you were saying, because cancer is a whole bunch of diseases that we humans have decided to classify together. And it, yeah, for our convenience, not not for the cancer's convenience. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So this is a type of model that the type of model of the world that the machine learning systems make. They don't start with generalizations, and they may not yield generalizations. We may not be able to look at it and say, oh, you know what it is? We just discovered that this causes type 2 diabetes or whatever. It may not yield the generalizations, or it may yield generalizations that are so mathematically complex and different from how we think about things that we don't understand them. We can't make sense of them. And we don't have to, as long as we have the outcome. Well, that is highly debatable. So I... I I tend very much to think that, that that's the case. I like explanations when we can have them, but I think that we are may in fact be that machine learning's types of models and its uses may be training us to accept outcomes even when we can't figure out how it got there. There's certainly easy examples of this already um, where the outcomes don't matter too much, like in um, teaching a computer through machine learning to play very complex games like Go. And it now beats the best Go, human Go players. And, it, and in ways that are completely unintuitive. <laughs> worse than unintuitive. Yeah, unintuitive and inexplicable. We can't figure out why it's making the moves that it does, but we know the moves are, in some sense, I'll put quotations around this, right, because they are, they are moves that lead to victory of the machine over the human. In other cases, we well may want to limit the use of this sort of black box AI that we can't you know, we can't figure out how it's figuring things out because trust in the outcome is more important than the outcome itself. Using AI in judicial systems that's deci deciding people's sentences or what their bail should be set at. Or even deciding which, which Twitter accounts should be banned. Yep. I mean, those sorts of decisions we sort of want to have. It's more important that we have confidence in our judicial system than in Twitter. Nevertheless, those are both <laughs> systems. I know that's a pretty radical thing to say, but that's a 2019 statement. Come back to me in four years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, where the justice system is Twitter. So yes. <laughs> if it's not already. So there are certainly cases where, you know, we're going to say we we demand to know human. We want humans involved or doing the work and we need to understand. So what is to me personally most interesting in part because of my background and just what I'm interested in, it's the sorts of models that we're learning to see as working better than the way that human models, human constructed models work. And I think this is a, sort of an epical change in how we think about ourselves and our role in the universe. Well, it certainly has ethical implications for the way that we're going to move forward and for what systems we're going to trust to control the, the choices that we have to make as a society that are larger than our individual choices and that emerge from our individual choices. Well, that's a can of worms. But yes, uh, 100%. My primary affiliation is with Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. I've been there for 15 years. And in the past few years, it's been very happily dominated in many ways by questions of AI policy and ethics. And so there's an enormous amount of work being done there and all around the world. And it's fantastic work on the ethical challenges that AI raises, which are very, so the core one, I think, is sort of the original sin of AI, which is AI, machine learning, learns from the data you feed in. If the data is, has something to do with humans, it's going very likely going to reflect human biases. And if the machine is, unless you do something, is likely to learn from those biases. So if you're trying to make a system that will evaluate job applications, machine learning system to you know, do the initial sorting or whatever, and so you train it on a whole bunch of data, 
existing data reflecting human society, it's very likely to learn that women do not correlate well with senior management positions because that's been the bias in, in the culture. And the machine learning system is very likely to learn that and to not only echo it, to, but to amplify it. So you have to be really careful and aware of that and take steps to do what you can to make sure to limit that. So that's built into the fact that machine learning learns from data. And so a huge amount of work is being done to try to minimize that effect, which is clearly disastrous if nothing's done. I think, though, that, what, that AI is also teaching us something about fairness and ethics. Because we tend, we broadly, I think, tend to think of fairness as a pretty, first of all, a really simple no notion. Give the same number of cookies to the to two kids unless there's some reason why kid number one should have fewer. And it has to be a good reason, right? It uh, can't be because of the color of, his, of her skin. That doesn't make sense. But, you know, if she has type 1 diabetes or is younger. You know, I think you're talking about the difference between equal and equitable. Yes, that's a, a good distinction. Machine learning, when you're designing a system, you have to tell it what the outcomes are that you want. It's just code. It doesn't know. So if you're designing it to, oh, let's say to do loan applications, sort, you know, who should get a, a loan, a mortgage loan? You have to decide what you're going to count as fair. And there can be lots of ways of, we in, the, in culture have lots of different ways of thinking about this. It turns out that fairness is really complex. And furthermore, that it almost always involves some type of trade-offs. So in machine learning, it might be that if way more men are getting loans granted thanks to the system than women, you're going to, I hope you're going to want to look at that and say, what's going on here? Is this fair and equitable? And do we want to do something about it? But that's going to involve things like, well, first of all, you can examine the data and make sure that that's not embodying uh, too many discriminatory uh, pieces of information. But you have to decide things like, so here's a, here's a possible imaginary conversation in this mortgage company. Oh my God, it's like, it's all dudes. I mean, this is horrible. This is so unfair. Uh, just on the face of it, it's unfair. And the developer will say, oh, you know, it's, We've checked the data, let's assume that, and it looks, data looks like it's probably pretty much okay. We can get more, it doesn't matter, I'm using men and women, you get more women into the mix or, or people who aren't super rich, for example, into the mix. We can do that, but that means maybe one of, the, one of the ways of doing that is to set the threshold, because all of these systems are probabilistic, we'll set the threshold for the group that's underrepresented a little, a little lower. And so sort of the rich white guy set of people who are getting in easily they don't, I'm going to make it up, the system says as long as there's an 80% chance that the system predicts they're going to pay back the loan, you can get in. But we're going to look at some of these other classes that we think are being unfairly excluded, and we'll just lower the threshold. They don't need to be 80%, they need, the system needs to be 70% or whatever. And that's certainly one plausible, and I think, equi equitable way of going. But somebody else could, somebody could look at that and say, no, no, that's completely unfair because you are arbitrarily lowering the threshold based upon gender or class or whatever the, you know, the feature is. Mm -hmm. There are lots of other variations of this. It means having this discussion, which you have to have, because you, you have to instruct the machine learning system very precisely about what you want it to do. It's just software. It means having a, a difficult and complex conversation about what you count as fair and what you count as what trade-offs you're willing to make. Because now you are asking the mortgage company to take more risk by lowering the threshold, perhaps. That's true. And you and I are, are talking right now in the middle of a capitalist society, arguably increasingly capitalist. And so the outcomes are to prefer the benefits to the stockholders, not necessarily to prefer the benefit to society as a whole, unless that's legislated. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And one of the things that I like, I'm hopeful about with machine learning is that as we become more used to having these sorts of very explicit arguments, discussions over our values and what, we, what we're willing to risk in order to get a value, that ethical conversations that can, in my, from my point of view, can get mired in moral principles at times, because it's very hard to make progress when two people who disagree about moral principles are, are arguing, can instead become more like the sorts of discussions you have in a city where you're trying to decide, do we want more bike lanes? Do we want to have more buses? What sort of city do we want to live in? This is a virtue ethics, as it's known technically, which has been growing for the past 30 years. I don't think I've heard that term before. Ethics in the West has been dominated since Aristotle by with a deontological, with a principle-based version of it, and then a sort of utilitarian-based version of it. And virtue ethics goes back to Aristotle's original question, 
about ethics, which is what is it to lead a good life? And if we expand this and say, what is it for us all to lead good lives together? Which is what Aristotle, I think, was thinking in the back of his mind. He assumed that it would be not just individualistic, self-serving egomaniacs, but that this would produce a, a good city. What does it mean to live in a good world together? And that lets us have an argument like cities have about, do we want more bike lanes? Yeah, sounds great, but we're going to have to we're going to have fewer car lanes. Are we okay with that? What's the effect on the local foot traffic in the, for the shops and, and the like? That's, those are good arguments to have. And it's a good framing for ethical questions. What are your values? What sort of world do you want to live in? What do we have to give up? What are you willing to give up? Because it's all trade-offs in order to get the best world that we can. And I know it's weird to say that machine learning may, of all things, may be bringing us closer to that view, but that's exactly the sort of arguments that you have when you're trying to figure out what sort of results you want from a machine learning system. And I think it's really positive. That's interesting. So in your, your new book, in, in Everyday Chaos, you're targeting this at what audience? Non-technical. So it's, it's uh, Harvard Business Press, so it is at least nominally a business book. There, most of the examples are business references. But each chapter also has a coda, uh, has a couple of pages of an essay that tries to make sure that it's broader, that the implications of this for broader topics in culture and thought are at least exposed or aired a little bit, not resolved. I can't resolve anything. It sounds like there's a lot more to this than just the business side of it. And that bringing more people around to recognizing what's happening is going to be part of bringing us as a society further. My fundamental interest is, in fact, in the broader questions. Um, business is one segment that is directly involved in this and directly affected by it. For me, the actual questions are much broader, and I think the book does reflect that from the beginning to the end. That these are questions about what does it mean to explain something? What constitutes an explanation? What does it mean to have a strategy? Is strategy still a really useful idea in many circumstances? When we talk about the meaning of things, what do we mean by meaning? And is that changing because of the sorts of models that machine learning is giving us and the sorts of experiences that we have on the internet? What does it mean to know things? I mean, these, I, I recognize these are really, really broad questions. My background is in philosophy and my background is in philosophy. So I don't think I have, it doesn't help me with credentials because I'm a very much an ex-philosophy teacher, but it, it gives me the ability to pretend. Well, it sounds like it helps to frame your thinking around these things. And even though you're currently publishing toward the business world, you're still approaching things from a philosophical perspective and thinking about the implications for society broadly. I seem to be unable to shake that. Yes. <laughs> Good. Don't. We like that. <laughs> Some of us. Yeah, this, this is hardly your first book, but I'm curious, what was it that made you feel that this was a, a concept that you could condense into a uniform book, into something that was unified? It's a very apropos question because the prior book that I wrote is called Too Big to Know. I think it was 2012. And it's about what, in particular, the Internet is doing to our, our idea of knowledge and how we know things. One of the thoughts running through that and the focus of a chapter is, well, no, actually, it's, I mean, for much of it, is the, the extent to which the physical nature of books has shaped and limited our idea of what knowledge is. And I'm far from the first person to make this argument. I mean, this is, but now we have a new medium, the internet, that is allowing knowledge to take a different form. And I think in many ways, some ways, obviously fake news and all that horrible, terrible form, but all of focus, understandable fake news, I think blinds us to the remarkable ways that knowledge has already changed in a very positive direction. But one of the chapters in that book argues against basically against books. You know, the limitations of book writing are just so deep and troubling that I thought I'd written my last book. And then I wrote another book. That was kind of what I was getting at, because, you know, once you've written a book, it becomes fossilized at this point in time. It, it's never going to change. And it's a physical printed thing. You're even publishing through a publisher, which makes it even more difficult to revise and to update. So all of these choices must have factored into your decision to make a book, go through a publisher. And I'm curious what the thought process was. Uh, well, I think two things. The first is a very obvious realization. Uh, it may be wrong, but it felt like a realization, which is, oh, it's sort of a dose lap, you know, just a, up right on your forehead. 
you know, books are sort of an art form. They're, they're a craft. And they have their own rules and they have their own limitations, but that's true of every craft and, and every art. And it's generally recognized by readers what those limitations are, because we've all been brought up in book, well, people of a certain age have been brought up in, in book culture. And you can do it well, you can do it badly. And there's some value in trying to do it well. I don't know that I succeeded doing well, but there's some value in, in trying. And that a book should not, does not attempt to tell the entire truth about anything, because it's, it can't. It's, it's too short. It's not infinite. It's, as you say, it's, it's stuck in time, it gets published, and then it's done. And then from that moment continually gets wronger and wronger, more and more out of date. And it's sequential. But if you accept those limits as limitations, it's like a canvas has four sides. It works with some types of paint and not others. Some types of paint you can't change once you put down. Others you can paint over. You know, watercolors you can't change, basically. Those are limitations that the artist and the person viewing the artwork understand and value. It adds to the value of the thing, so long as it's not tape it, taken as a representation of everything. And for a book, everything that needs to be said. So I began to think, oh, okay, maybe there's room for books. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, and as, as you say, it is a, it's a craft, and it's a craft that you've done enough that you have mastery of, and you know what goes into it, but you also know how much it takes to put together a book. There's so much effort that goes into it, and then suddenly, whoosh, there it is. It's out there in the world. That choice, it, it implies something about the way that you want to get this idea across and how you want it to affect society. Yes, I mean, that's why I went to a publisher, because the publisher has distribution that I, as a blogger, don't have. And I am a longtime blogger. Um, it also carries prestige. I mean, you know, they, it's very old-fashioned, but the limitations of paper are such that getting a book published is a mark is taken as and a mark of, of value. And depending on the publisher, you know. Uh, the other thing that happened was that I, when I finished Too Big to Know, the prior book, I was co-director of the Harvard Library Innovation Lab, and my big project there was to help build a, well, to oversee the building of, I did none of the coding, of an open platform for the metadata for Harvard's collection, book collection. And the book collection is the second largest in the, in the country. It's magnificent. Thir 13 million books and then millions of other items. And all of the metadata, the information about those is, was available to our lab. And we wanted to build a, find a way to make that metadata available to anybody on the web who wanted to do something interesting with it. Build their own browser, do some research, build a niche browser, a different way of a book recommendation system that could use it. And so we built an open platform, this open application programming interface for developers, anybody with some, I wouldn't say basic, but let's say intermediate set of JavaScript skills who wanted to build an application of some sort could can use it all freely. And so, and we did it, it's called Library Cloud, and it's, it's, of course it's open source and it's publicly available, and it's being used by Harvard Library internally. And I began to think then about the way in which this was the opposite of the traditional way of building a product, that all of the value of this, of this open API came from the ability of people to do things with it that we had not anticipated. All of the value. I, I think that you know, we as a society have learned recently just how much value there is in being able to research and analyze metadata in, you know, not just the data itself, but the metadata, phone records, whatever, <laughs> once yeah. you start putting it in there, the things that you can turn up that you wouldn't expect otherwise. Yes. And with phone data, much of it, the first examples that spring to mind are rather negative. With books, it's not book usage, right? Though there was actually a clever way that we included some book usage information. 100% anonymized. With books, it's less pernicious. There, there are, you can imagine, ways in which this information could be misused. And you have to either, generally, you have to be willing to stomach that. Yeah, I don't think that we've gotten very good at figuring out what is pernicious and what isn't. That's exactly right, right? Because people can find ways of using, if they can find ways of using your data, your metadata, that you couldn't have thought of, they can also find evil ways of using your metadata that you didn't think of. It's an issue, and there are various ways of dealing with it, but you are in some sense giving up at least some measure of control, and so you run some measure of risk as well. Has anybody been doing anything interesting with the library cloud? Yes, some. 
early on there were a set of apps that people built, some of them toys, some of them you know, sort of experimenting, and some of them useful. We built a browser based on the, on the open API. We internally had access to the number of times a book was checked out over some period and broken down by grad student, undergrad, or faculty. If you make that information available in the raw, there are pretty easy scenarios by which people could be identified as having taken a book out, and libraries are very committed to preserving that sort of privacy. So we did something else, which is we computed a number based upon that type of information, some other stuff, how often the book was put on reserve for class and the like. And we used that to compute a number between 1 and 100 for every item in the library, um, which is a rough measure of how important the item is to the Harvard community. And so this, the browser that we built had a number of interesting features, but one of them was that uh, when you do a search, normally the, the results you get back are uh, the results that are, the system thinks are relevant to your query. With ours, it was a mix of relevancy, but also sorted by the usage, the popularity of that item to the community. So if, I'm going to make this up, but if you're searching for evolution, do a search on evolution, um, it well might not give you back the number one most relevant item on evolution. What it would give you back is the stuff about evolution that are, is most being used by the Harvard community. And the idea behind Library Cloud was this type of scoring could be done by other institutions as well. And so you would be able, in an ideal world, to Library Cloud installations, you'd be able to see... At Harvard, you'd be able to say, okay, these are the Harvard books. That, these are the books the Harvard community cares about on evolution, but also be able to see, and these are the books that Yale Divinity School thinks are important, or MIT, or Oxford, or universities from around the world, and use that to try to inform communities about what they are not reading as a way of trying to get past the echo chamber effect within a community. I love that. It's because it's a way to surface things that otherwise they're being used, but you don't understand how the communities are, are applying them until you see the, them in their context. And then you can perhaps correlate that across Stanford, this, Harvard, that, Yale, that. Where do you want to put your focus and why? Yeah, I think it'd be you know, it's really interesting this, for somebody in one university to see, i make it up again, what MIT is reading about evolution, which may well be very, very different from what they're reading. And they can say, oh, huh, I would never have found that book that MIT is reading, except that you know, I could see what that... And having communities inform each other this way, I think, would be fantastic. The, the type of work you're doing, it sounds like you're, you, you go in a lot of different directions. How do you characterize the, the bubble? What, what's the short-form term for what you do? Sort of the tagline that I use for myself, and I realize I use it mainly to end conversations about somebody says, what do you do? I say, I write about the effect of technology on ideas. And that sentence seems to get people not to ask a follow-up, and we can talk about something that isn't me. Oh, it would make me want to ask a lot of follow-up questions, actually. <laughs> it's hard, you know, but what ideas? Nobody's ever asked me that, which is good. That's why it's there. Oh, what ideas? <laughs> um, they don't even ask what technology. That I actually have a simple answer to. It's primarily the internet and AI. I'm also, a, I should mention, I, so I identify myself as a writer, which I did not do until I was 50, now 68. But I am, for the past year, I've been a writer in residence at Google attached to a machine learning research group. It's people and AI research pair, which is sort of on the humanistic side of AI. So I hang out with a small group of really, really smart young developers who are working on some wonderful projects. And uh, we don't get an education in AI. That sounds like incredible fun. How did you get involved with that? I got invited to a, a relatively small symposium they held locally. This is all in Boston and Cambridge. And at the end of it, the heads of this group, Pear, said, you know, we're, we're hiring, which was like, <laughs> I, I, they should never have done that. <laughs> but I went up to them afterwards and said, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a developer but I'd be interested in finding some way of working with you because what they were doing was really, really interesting. It was right up my alley. It, it sounds perfect for a writer, especially with, with your interests. I'm curious, as a writer, how do you structure your work? How do you structure the time that you put into putting together a project like this and balance it against the other things that you're working on? <laughs> it depends. So for a book, pretty much the same for everything, but for a book, I spend literally years trying to build the outline and understanding what the topic is that I'm writing about. And that, that's really, really hard for me. And the way of doing that is to continually build 
chapter outlines in some degree of detail about what's in them and seeing how they work. And the chapter, chapter outline doesn't work, then that's the wrong topic. I'll spend a long time doing that. So once I have an outline of, uh, so I sort of know what the book is about and I sort of know what, I'm, what the chapters are like, then every, I write every day. I don't think I'm compulsive about it. When I say this to you, I think, yeah, I'm probably compulsive about it. <laughs> I write every day. I just don't feel right if I haven't done some of that work. How do you structure that? Is that uh, time? Is that word count? Like uh, people approach writing every day in different ways. Yes. Yeah. So once I'm actually writing the book or if I'm writing an essay or something, I know pretty much at this point where it's going. Every day I wake up and I know what the today's section is supposed to be. Um, it's not by word count, but it's, you know, I'm, I could probably go back and do a word count, but it's it's not a lot. It's a thousand words, it might be maybe 2000 words. I think that'd be a lot for a day actually for me. Um, I know that this is the thing I need to be talking about, and I write it. I go back and reread what I wrote yesterday and almost always change it or throw it out because I'm not, not very good. I'm, you know, I edit more than I write, I think, or certainly more than I write. And then I get up the next day and I know, okay, I, I got to the point where I'm at the thing I need, know I need to write about the next day, and I you do that. And you do that enough day, days, you have a book, maybe a terrible book that needs to be rewritten, but you have a book. Well, that's why you, you establish a good relationship with an editor, too. Yes, and for this book, especially for the new one, um, Everyday Chaos, the editor was incredibly helpful. I mean, just fantastic and really patient, really insightful. The process is more bifurcated than that, in my experience, working with editors, where you're turning in something that's pretty much done, and they may come back with, often do, with really helpful comments, um, some of them, you know, word choice, but some of them also, this chapter doesn't work and here's why, or I really think you need to drop this and do that or move it. You know, it would be interesting switch chapters seven and two. I mean, I, you know, or take chapter seven and make it the second chapter. And I say, that's a surprise ending. And they say, well, think about it and turn that to the right. This one was just was really very interactive and really helpful. But this was a really, everyday chaos was harder than anything I've ever written, ever written. Interesting. Why, why do you think that was? The, the positive of saying, way of saying it, I think, is it was more ambitious. I think it was more vain and vainglorious. I mean, it, it's about very big, big topics um, that I'm not competent to write about and required writing about AI, a field that I was learning about as I was writing about. Um, with in, the Internet, you know, I've lived through so much of the Internet and in, been involved in various ways with, with different parts of its growth that it didn't feel quite as much as, okay, I better go out and learn about this. You know? I honestly think that you probably are one of the most qualified people to write about this, especially with access to the resources that you have. Uh, so those resources are astounding. The main one is the Internet, which everybody has access to. I also have access to Harvard Library, I, you know, so it's, it kills me that the rest of the world does not have access to the sorts of research papers that you need to be affiliated with a university who's paying incredible amounts of money to uh, publishers, academic journal publishers, to provide access to. It's a scandal. It, it, it's unethical. It's immoral that this stuff is not available. Morality is where my mind was going to. It feels like it's almost a moral obligation for somebody who has access to that to at least provide a summary to the rest of the world in the form of a book. <laughs> yes, but also, I mean, that's, you know, summary in form of a book is fine, but people need to be writing their own books. They need to, need this access. And if you were divided, designing a world and you wanted humans, you wanted the world to survive and to flourish, this is not the system. You would let everybody, especially now that the internet exists, there's no impediment except providing internet access, another question, to all of the world's thinking. That's what you would do. We're making our, ourselves as a species stupider by not doing this. So I have access to that sort of research. I have access to a few communities that are just unbelievably rich, and it's a, a privilege in, in both senses to be able to be a part of them. The Harvard community, the Berkman Klein community is just astounding. I wrote this book pretty much after I pretty much finished it before I started at Google, but having access to you know, genius-level developers who are also really kind and, and fun to be with is amazing. There are some mailing lists. I know this, again, makes me a very old internet denizen, but I, I don't do much with Facebook. I like Twitter. But I've been on email 
uh, mailing list, some of them for 25 years, among people who are just an incredible resource for things that they know, and I can ask questions, it is just astounding. And, and the main thing is that, you know, uh, the main way that I managed this was that I was born an American middle class, well, slightly lower middle class uh, white guy with really stable family that was very invested in providing education. And that's like a 99% leg up on the world. And I lucked out. And that gives you the luxury to choose what you want to do next. And I'm curious, where do you think this is going to take you next? Well, so for the next few months anyway, I am at Google as a writer in residence and I'm writing, there's a ton of things about, about machine learning that is still just completely fascinating to me. So I expect I'll be writing mainly about that. It raises questions about really fundamental questions. And if your background is in philosophy, even if you are no longer a competent practitioner of it, I am not. These are just questions that are just so enticing. I mean, really fundamental questions about what it means to explain something what constitutes an explanation, and how important it is to us as humans to insist that we are the creatures that can explain things, that can understand things. The ways in which machine learning thinks, I put things in quotes here because it's just software, it doesn't think, but the way in which machine learning thinks about things and puts them together is so different, so alien from the way that we humans do. And at least in some instances, the machine learning seems to, again, air quotes, knows uh, stuff that we don't or can predict more accurately than we can. It seems it's really appealing to think that, well, maybe this means that machine learning's way of representing the world to itself is truer than our way. And we can't understand its way of representing the world, at least in some instances. That to me is just so provocative and hard to think about and and interesting, but I expect to be writing about that for at least a while. That is fascinating. Bumping up against what our definition of think is, what no means, and how, how we've constrained our definitions of those things to, to be the way that our brains work. Yes. And, you know, we have brains that do the thinking, and the way that our brains think is the way that our brains think. <laughs> it's not like, you know, we can step outside our brains. And so we run up against the limits of our own thought in dealing with this stuff. And, and in some ways, these machines that we've built are showing us the limitations of our own thought. It's just deeply interesting to me. Well, I'm sure that the listeners are going to want to find out more about the things that you're going to be writing going forward. Where should I send them to find out more? The easiest place to go is weinberger.org, which is a very minimal homepage, but will take you to my blog and some book pages and the like. Okay, cool. I will send them there. Thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure talking with you, and I'm fascinated by this, and I'm sure my listeners will be as well. Oh, thank you so much. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>